Welcome to the ACO Show. On today's show, Aldi's Joe Schonkweiler and Josh Israel talk to Sean Cavanaugh and Travis Broom about the new models for primary care that Medicare has just announced. Sean is the former head of the Center for Medicare and the current chief administrative officer at Allidate. And Travis is Allidate's vice president of policy. This interview is meant to be a little heavy on policy details. If you want to know what's coming next in the world of primary care, take a listen. Welcome to the ACO Show. We're here with Travis Broom and Sean Cavanaugh. Travis is our VP of Policy here at Allidade, and Sean Cavanaugh is our Chief Administrative Officer. One of the great things about being in this field is it's constantly evolving, and particularly recently. Just in April, we had several new models come out through CMS, and Sean and Travis are very kindly joining us today to talk through some of those new models. Thanks, Sean and Travis. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So first off, could you just give a, a overview of the models, just so our listeners know? Sure. The first thing I'd say is I really applaud what the CMS is doing here. When we were, when I was at CMS, we very consciously thought of the Innovation Center as sort of the R&D testbed for the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And you've seen that over time. Things that have been tested in the Pioneer ACOs, Next-Gen ACOs, over time, gravi- Track 1 Plus, tra- over time, gravitate to the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So what I think you see here is them trying to push the envelope again in some ways, in um, particularly in direct contracting, in ways that could inform the permanent program in the future. Um, so I, I applaud that they're continuing that tradition, and we really like some of the features they've. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things to know right off the bat, right, what the models are collectively called primary care initiatives, mm-hmm. right? So CMS took the bullseye and sh- – put it right on top of primary care and you know we'll, we'll talk about how close they got and I think they got pretty close more details still to come for sure but the number one thing is it's detailed primary care's initiatives and I think but all the models and there's technically five um, we're going to spend most of our time on three of them but there's technically five involved really do one core thing they all share one core thing in common and that is trying to change the way primary care is reimbursed for or paid for through Medicare. So some of the precursor problem, uh, programs, Comprehensive Primary Care Plus, Next Gen ACO, um, Track 1 Plus, and the models, many of the models that Sean was alluding to, they've all tweaked the fee-for-service chap- chappy, supplemented it, if you will. Comprehensive Primary Care Plus is a great example of this, where they basically say, well, we'll keep paying you exactly how we pay you today in fee-for-service, except for this one code, and we're going to replace this one code with a per-patient or per-person monthly payment. We'll give you $15 per patient per person, for instance, per month. But it's still like everything else you do, 95% of your interaction for Medicare stays the same. These models say, no, for primary care, we are going to pay you differently. Like The money you get from Medicare will arrive differently for different reasons than it did before. Namely, they're going to 
put the bulk, so more than 50% of the, all the revenue you get for your time if you're a physician and your staff's time. So not you know reimbursing you for the cost of a vaccine, for instance, but paying for your time, paying for those people's time, that expertise, more than 50% is now going to come through these per-person monthly payments. And so now taking more than half of my time is not reimbursed due to a CPT code anymore. Um, it is reimbursed through this monthly per person payment. Um, and then for the rest of it, they're going to do kind of a flat visit, right? It's just like they come in, person comes into the office, you see them, 50 bucks, done. Doesn't matter what you saw them for, doesn't matter how long you took, it's just an, kind of almost an interactive um, when you have that interactive in-person contact with flat fee. So this is really replacing the fee-for-service chassis for primary care. Different parts of the different models that we'll talk about as we get into. Um, later on, total cost of care, risk, is it more than primary care? Lots of different things in the models. But all five models have that in common. And I think that is the big initiative. And uh of, of primary care initiative is this idea of like we are no longer for primary care going to just build on top of a fee-for-service chassis we're actually going to have a different basis again for primary care in some ways it's funny travis as you were talking it reminded me you know five ten years ago the primary care debate was how do we change the fee schedule to pay more for primary care and it was very frustrating. We did a lot of different things. We did, you know, going after overvalued codes and moving that money into the E&M codes. And it never seemed to move the needle. And in some ways, this is sort of leaping ahead and saying, all right, forget that debate. Let's just go straight to capitation or the transition mm -hmm. to capitation. Um, some might say the underlying calibration of that capitation, dependent on the fee schedule as it is, is still broken. But they're trying to move past that debate and I think rightly so in that it recognizes the, the importance of primary care in all these models. So I found it quite interesting to just see the news coming out of the announcement to have primary care trending on Twitter. You know, people you would never have thought would have an opinion on this weighing in. That was really interesting to see working in this field. Um, the other thing, and I, you, you answered some of this, Sean, but I wanted to, to go back to it for a second. Um, most of our listeners would know that Sean is a former head of the Center for Medicare, um, and you have a great perspective on how we get to this point in approaching primary care from this perspective. So you said it wouldn't it would be different 10 years ago or it is progressed from 10 years ago. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about that but from your time to now? Like, what do you see as the biggest shifts? Sure. Well, there's, there's a body of evidence if looking at international health systems that say the more um, one invests in primary care, the better the outcomes. It's a lower cost system. It's a higher quality system. And then you look at the American system, um, which was very different. Um, fewer people in the U.S. health system train in primary care. We tend to underpay that primary care for a variety of reasons, and we have the outcomes that those studies would indicate. We have a high cost, not high quality system. So in, for much of my career, the focus has been how do we get more money to primary care as if that would be sufficient. Just if you put the money there, then people would train there and you'd get the better outcomes. I think a lot of people had some skepticism that it would necessarily lead to the better outcomes, but still thought investing in primary care probably was good in and of itself. 
The way to do that, there's really two ways to do that historically. One has been the Medicare fee schedule um, is on what's based called a relative value schedule, meaning the amount of inputs that go into a service value how much Medicare pays for it. And when it was first introduced, it did provide a bump to primary care. But over time, the specialty societies have, one, been very good at getting new codes approved, which move relative value units to those new codes, but also have been more aggressive about getting their codes valued higher. Um, so a lot of the work, and it's been tedious and difficult, but worthwhile work has been going after some of those overvalued specialty codes, bringing them down in the hopes that it would bring up the primary care codes. We did a lot of that, and it didn't seem to make a fundamental difference in how the lives and incomes of primary care physicians. Um, one thing that did miraculously work was the Affordable Care Act simply said, forget that, we're just paying 10% more for primary care. <laughs> and it worked. You know what happens when you say you're paying more? More money goes to primary care. Unfortunately, that was time limited. It went away after a couple of years. Um, but it was more effective probably than anything else we've done. Another way is saying, well, hold on. As a health system, we're trying to move away from fee-for-service fee generally. Why are we trying to fix primary care through the fee-for-service schedule? And the origins of that were the primary care medical home, you know, the various per-member-per-month payments. In Medicare, the origins was the CPC, the original CPC model, which you know, wonderfully inspired, but that, like all models, was flawed and we learned from it. And I think, as Travis has rightly pointed out, this is where we've grown to, where primary care first model is trying to learn, not just learn from what we did in CPC and its successor, but push it forward, correct the mistakes, but then be more aggressive. And direct contracting, it's less about getting more money to primary care, but it is so clearly built understanding that primary care will be the foundation of these new models. So am I correct then? This is not exactly a value-based model in the sense of paying for outcomes, as we often think, more as just um, putting higher value on something that we think is valuable, which is primary care. Is that accurate? I'd say that's where the, the five models that are in the primary care initiative start to diverge a little bit. Um, so they all have some outcome at their basis. So for primary care first, uh, which is really the practice level model, it's hospitalizations, right? Um, if I will make more money if my patients go to the hospital less than average. Um, and then you can go to direct contracting, which is an ACO model, right? Where the, now you're taking potentially full risk, 100% down, 100% up, full risk on total cost of care. There's also a lesser option where it's 50-50. Um, and then there's yet another model called the geographic model that, um, you know, Sean, I'll kind of let you talk about geographic a little bit and what it could be and, and how much risk we're, we're talking about there. Yeah, I do want to return to geographic, but we shouldn't overlook. You made the point that the primary care first model, rather than focusing explicitly on total cost of care, has decided to use a proxy measure, which is reduced hospitalizations. Um, and as if you're going to choose a high-level measure, it's probably the best one you mm -hmm. can choose. It has the advantage of really focusing folks, right? So if you're a primary care doc, like, what do you want me to do? Think about how you keep your patients out of the hospital. So th there's a certain real uh, attraction to that. The downside is, as we've all learned being in the ACO world for a while, you can reduce hospitalizations without reducing total cost of care. 
Um, there are so many, you know, different levers in Medicare spending, whether it's Part B drugs or SNF spending, um, that solely reducing hospitalizations won't necessarily reduce total cost of care. So I, I'm not I'm not arguing that it was wrong to focus on it. I actually think it's probably a great idea, but I just want to warn everybody it, it won't necessarily, in every case, lead to lower cost of care. We could see some unintended consequences there. As with cool. any model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, I think we almost be nosing. That's the point out there. But, like, we can solve that. That problem's easily solvable. You can be in a Medicare shared savings program, ACO, and be in primary care first. Um, you know, dual participation, as it's known, is true in the current program, Comprehensive Primary Care Plus. 46% of practices are both in that program and in MSSP ACO. Um, and I think you'll see that dual participation number be even higher in primary care first, which brings in that kind of accountability for everything else while still aligning primary care first with something that ACOs care about, which is hospitalizations. Having a single measure like that seems like a, an elegant solution and something that was clearly thought through. And just to, to provide some color commentary here, is this does this mean that primary care is a bipartisan issue in Washington? I think primary care has long been a bipartisan issue, just as value-based care has been a bipartisan issue and maybe delivery system reform in, in, you know, in a whole has been bipartisan. Certainly seems that way, you know, based on what we're seeing coming out of this administration. So um, to go from the more abstract or theoretical aspects of this to what it actually means for doctors who are across the country seeing patients, um, how would you sum this up for a physician either within Allidade or, or just out, maybe not in an ACO? Like how does this impact you as a primary care physician? Travis and I have talked about this quite a bit, and both the direct contracting and the primary care first models, one of the fundamental things they provide is a different way to receive your revenue. So rather than being wholly dependent on fee-for-service, you can get it in a f- various forms of capitation. And we agree that this is meaningless unless you as a physician want to fundamentally deliver care differently, meaning you want to build your visits differently, do more work by telephone, group visits, um, all sorts of, you know, using more technology Things that wouldn't traditionally be valued by Medicare, paid by Medicare. If you think you can deliver high-value care that way, and the the revenue stream was the was the primary blocking factor, then these models were made for you. But if you just like the notion of rather than having my revenue go up and down every month and average out to something, and now I'll get a nice even check, you know that's it is not it. It won't be a meaningful change in that regard. I think one of the so. One of the first things, just to kind of from the informational aspect, is it's not going to be uh, nationwide. So first things first, if you're thinking about participating in primary care first, um, it's in 26 states, 26. I won't try and rattle them off here for you. Um, readily available. I'm sure we'll, we'll link in the podcast there for you. But you know, first question is, is it coming to my area? If you already have comprehensive primary care plus, it is coming to your area, but it's also coming to new places as well. Um, so that's kind of like number one. And number two for me is exactly what Sean said of like, you know, do I feel like fee for service is holding me back in the way I practice? 
the answer to that is honestly no. Like I can't really think about anything like I can't do tomorrow because of fee for service, knowing that you know this isn't like a whole bunch of new money coming in. It's money coming in in a different way. Um, then you know Medicare shared savings program, great opportunity to make more, put more money into primary care through shared outcomes and shared savings thing, and off and running. But if you are in a place in one of these areas and thinking about, you know, there are things that I wish I could do differently. Like I would spend more time on the phone with my patients rather than making them come into the office if, you know, it wouldn't result in my office closing because being on the phone doesn't generate revenue, right? Um, this provides, you know, a, a unique opportunity to do some of, to do those things. Um, so really for me, it's all about, um, that soul searching at the practice level of am I being held back by fee for service in very specific ways? Or is it more of like, you know, to Sean's point that he's made several times, like, yeah, it's not that fee for service holds him back. It's just that I think we should spend more on primary care. Um, in which case, you know, that's absolutely, you know, the right way to do it, but it's not the reason you abandoned the fee for service model. If you are a, a doctor thinking about one of these models, you know, I have always been impressed with the brave doctors who joined ACOs when it was a new concept. And that was really an incremental change. You know, their their fundamental income was still going to be derived from fee for service that had been working for them. You know, what would it take to get a doctor to, you know, switch from driving on the right side of the road to the left side of the road? You know, it seems like that'd be That'd be a, a pretty scary hard sell at first. I think well, I think there's different answers for the two general types of models. I think direct contracting is for practices and frankly organizations like ACOs that are already firmly committed to this approach, have the infrastructure for it, and are just are looking to like accelerate the change and get have CMS give them tools to accelerate the change, more cash flow, more predictability, you know, all the things we all acknowledge the ACO model needs more of. I think your question is much more apt on the um, primary care first side. And I think it goes back to what Travis was just saying, which is this is the model for you, or this is the way of practicing. If you, you on a day-to-day -day basis, see there's things I would like to do in my practice, interactions I'd like to have with my patients, but I can't do it for financial reasons because the fee-for-service system doesn't recognize them. So you, you touched on this a bit there, Sean, if, if this has potentially an impact for a physician, depending on where they are and whether they're already participating in a program like CPC Plus, what about for the more complex administrative processes that are near and dear to our heart here at Allidade? So what does it mean for ACOs um, in general, these potential uh, programs that are coming down the pike? Yeah, I mean, for for if there, I think for ACOs, when you look at it through the ACO lens, um, the programs are actually very different. Um, you know, from the practice lens, they both have basically primary care capitation at their heart. But from the ACO lens, you know, ACOs don't directly participate in primary care first, right? They're all about total cost of care. That's basically the definition of an ACO, um, accountability for total cost of care. So from an ACO's perspective, you're probably looking at, I'm going to have some of my practices on the fee-for-service chassis, and I'm going to have some of my practices um, in primary care first and kind of off the fee-for-service chassis. Um, and an ACO is going to have to be able to support both. I think the good news is like, you know, if we, if we just waved a magic wand and made money disappear for a second. Like 
primary care does still vary. Like different primary care physicians want to do it different ways, but like it's a lot, lot, lot closer than the payment mechanisms are to each other. So I think the work, um, you know, let's say the work is 90% overlap. Um, and then it's all about getting the most out of that 10% um, that, you know, you have the different payment mechanisms allow if you go to primary care cap. From an ACO's perspective, direct primary, direct contracting, um, direct provider contracting as it used to be known now, it's just direct contracting. Um, that's basically a different ACO option. Um, that it would be, you know, if you do that option, you're no longer living in both worlds. All of your primary care practices in your ACO um, are basically paid um, not necessarily by the cap, but they're paid by the ACO, right? The ACO receives a primary care cap, 7% of whatever they cost. So basically if uh, the average for your ACO is $10,000, they're going to send you 700 bucks. You being the ACO, CMS is going to send you 700 bucks uh, of that $10,000 and it's your job to pay for primary care at that $700. Um, so that's a big change. That's not how it works today with the ACO worlds where Medicare processes all the fee-for-service claims and defines what's payable and what's not payable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's total cost of care. I mean, just, you know, just like we have in the uh, uh, two-sided risk ACOs, this both of these would be two-sided risk ACOs. So not only am I responsible for using that 7% well, I'm also on the hook for the total cost of care if I don't use that 7% um, of primary care dollars well. Um, so from an ACO perspective, it's, you know, DC is really the big change. Yeah, though, it occurred to me when you were talking, Travis, that for a primary care physician to participate in DC, the direct contracting, would require a great level of trust with the entity, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, you control your own destiny and treat for service. If you don't, even if you don't like the ACO, you're still getting a check every month from Medicare, right? Here, you're throwing in your lot with the ACO. Your Medicare money is coming through the ACO. So if you didn't have that high level of trust and feeling personally invested in and even part of it, you know, in a true meaningful way, that's a bit of a risk. You burn the boats with direct contracts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no escape. Yeah. Um, I'm being facetious, obviously. Um, no boats will be burned uh, because of this program. Yeah, uh, we, we just got them to put both feet in the boat. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> boats on fire. It's like a Viking funeral thing. It's multiple boat metaphors. I don't really sail um, or do anything like that. So um, what I love about the prep for this podcast in particular is my notes look like my notes from taking health economics with Uva Reinhardt in graduate school. Um, and because of that, I wanted to go back to a point you were just talking about, capitated cash flow and how that relates to this and all the elements that go into that. Um, can you do like a, a 101 two-liner on capitated cash flow? For our devoted listeners, <laughs> two until, lines until this. <laughs> <laughs> two lines. All right. Uh, so line number one would you know almost has to explain what it is today, which is basically that you know when I say fee for service, it really is completely driven by you know CPT codes. So I turn you know what am I really paid for? I turn in a CPT code nine nine two one four to CMS. They have a schedule, or to Blue Cross Blue Shield, or mm-hmm. to anybody, they have a schedule that says, all right, this type of doctor turning in this type of code, $82.37. And my revenue is the codes times that fee schedule equals. Um, in primary care capitation, 
they say it's based on not codes, but people. So rather than saying CPT code X is 8232, they're going to say you are attributed, you know, a Medicare beneficiary is using your practice as their primary care home. And because of that fact, we will now send you $45 in the middle group um, for each month um, that that is true, that that, um, we attribute that person to your practice. Um, And I'm a healthy person. I might get $45 in one month and never see them. Next month, I might get $40 to $5 and they might be in the office twice and I spend an hour with them on the phone. And so that is, the to me, the biggest difference. It's going from a service-based reimbursement to a person-based reimbursement. And I think the distinction everybody has to keep in mind is that is a cash flow mechanism, meaning that's how you get paid during the performance year. And it's important because... If you can only be paid when you physically see a patient, that's going to affect how you practice. But there's a secondary part of this, which is what are you ultimately held accountable for? What, and that is the budget at the end of the year. And that's where it's determined whether you saved money or cost money relative to the budget. And then there's that calculation, which and they are separate calculations, but they each play an important function. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about risk, all the various forms of risk. And in this case... Uh, risk would seem to come into play that if you're trying to keep your patients out of the hospital, it's going to be harder to keep those who are sicker out of the hospital. Um, you know, you don't want providers avoiding sick patients because they may get hospitalized more. So I assume there's going to be some kind of risk adjustment in the program. Can you speak to that? Yeah. It, we always say, you know, the, the most important thing about any of these models is the benchmark. And where the benchmark is set is partly dependent on how it's adjusted or how it accounts for the risk of the underlying population. Um, in the direct contracting model, we are told through all the materials in the webinar um, that there will be a new and innovative approach to risk adjustment. I, I should back up and by say the, the major risk adjustment methodology currently in use by CMS is primarily used in the Medicare Advantage program, and it's believed that it provides overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans, and therefore CMS has been reluctant to use, fully use that same system for ACOs, but we believe by failing to use any system, it underpays ACOs. So no one's been really happy with where we are. And they've offered this notion that there will be something new and innovative to recognize risk in this program, um, but we haven't seen the details of that yet, and we're all eagerly awaiting this. The way HCCs are used by CMS has been refined over the years, and it works much, much better than it used to because they've broken out full duels and partial duels. They've done a lot of tweaking over the years. And so that phenomenon... Duels meaning people who also have Medicaid. Yeah, I'm sorry. People who have Medicare coverage and Medicaid, which is just a proxy for people who are poorer and sicker. Um, It has nothing to do with their insurance status, but the fact that you qualify for Medicaid indicates you might be poorer and sicker. It is true that at the extreme ends of the distribution of cost, the model doesn't do as good a job, meaning, but it's not the top 10 and top and bottom 10%. It's much smaller than that. And it's also unusual to have a population made up that's primarily at that end of the spectrum. Usually you have a mix of beneficiaries. And when you have a mix of beneficiaries, the model does even better. Um, but interestingly, um, in primary care first, They have provided this range of risk groups where they're going to pay different amounts to appropriately. 
And based on the amounts they propose to pay, it does seem like they think some practices have very, mm -hmm. very high-risk um, patient populations as a whole, not on average, but as a whole. So it'll be interesting as we learn more about that, what types of practices the, they're seeing in the data. Yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, – and you. Yeah, right. To, to put a fine point on that, right? It goes from $23 per person per month, $28 per person per month, up to $45 per person per month. And those are the first three groups. Group four is $100 per person per month. Group five is $175 per person per month. So it'll be really interesting when CMS actually gives us the ranges for those of, you know, with that dramatic difference, I, I'm expecting that very few practices will qualify in group four or group five. Um, but if it turns out that there are a lot of group four and group five practices out there, um, it might actually end up kind of backdooring some of that greater investment um, in primary care that you were talking about into the program. But, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. We kind of have a, a decent sense of what the model is, or at least what the basis of the model is. But one thing CMS has not given us yet at all is like, what are the ranges for those five groups? The one thing we haven't mentioned yet on primary care first is CMS would love other payers mm -hmm. <laughs> to participate. If any of you are listening, certainly encourage um, any private uh, payers out there to consider um, joining primary care first and kind of modeling their primary care cap to the extent they have an interest in primary care cap. Um, if you do, um, you know, modeling it off of this one, because when we think about changing that physician day, right, we can talk about how fundamental Medicare did. And I think if you do primary care first, it's a pretty fundamental change to cash flow, maybe depending on what group you're in, the total amount too. Um, but it's still only going to be 25%, a third of your patients. That's kind of hard to structure. We changed my whole day uh, for one third of my patients and pretend like nothing changed for two thirds of my patients. Um, whereas if we can get multi-payer participation, if you can get the large, you know, what we find at Allidate, if you get Medicare and the practice's largest commercial payer, you're probably going to get over 50% of their patients. Now we're talking about, oh, I have a new freedom, a new way I can practice for over half of my patients. That feels much more game changing to me um, as far as like, you know, what an actual day at a primary care practice looks like than if Medicare as a loan just does this. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up, Travis. Back when the original CPC model was created, it's worth noting that when CMS announced the model, they announced it for payers, not for primary care physicians first, because what they what we what we wanted was we wanted other payers to do exactly what we said. We wanted to launch this model in regions where other payers were going to do exactly or not exactly the same thing, but a very similar model for purposes of giving practices, you know, one set of workflows, one set of incentives. Um, they, this new model, primary care first, was not announced to payers first. I'm told, and I'm no reason not to believe in that they've done some work in the background to make sure there are pairs aligned with it. And that will be exciting. And we'll look forward to make sure that's true. Um, Cause I do think that multi-payer aspect of it is another point of leverage. If you don't have it, you've lost some of the potential of the model. Thank you very much, Sean and Travis. Thanks guys. <laughs> Thank you.